This yes. is hell. I see. Putting people before profits since 1996, which turns out to be a horrible, stupid, dumb business model. This is hell. Your daily, completely listener-supported source of agita. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. How's your week going so far, Alex? Uh, good. We got a piece of uh, listener feedback from your monologue yesterday about how you don't like to travel well. And it's uh, from the sickest of the Zen patriarchs, Dogen, who wrote, and this is one of my favorite quotes, Why give up your seat at home to wander in the dust of foreign lands? One false step and you stray from the way traced out directly before you. That means you don't don't got to go anywhere. (laughs) Everyone's all the same everywhere. And you can always take a trip while at home. Something to always consider. Today, some call the time we live in the... (laughs) Today, some call the time we live in the Anthropocene meaning that humans are now the most dominant influence on our environment, surpassing nature. Although I'm not too sure that's the case when you consider the ways nature has been kicking our asses lately. Others call this era late capitalism, as in this system that we suffer under today, coming to an end. But again, neoliberalism seems very alive and kicking us right where it counts. And we're still having trouble imagining an alternative to capitalism. Whatever you want to call this period in history, what all these labels seem to be pointing to is we are living in a world that seems ruined. So is it any surprise that we are obsessed with the ruins of capitalism, the shuttered, decaying factories of the Rust Belt, the abandoned homes reclaimed by nature and cities that have been left behind by their former citizens? We look at these buildings that once produced goods and livelihoods with reverential awe of a time of secure, well-paying union jobs with good benefits, a time that is now long gone. We wax nostalgic for for what once was without considering the impact those jobs and that work had on nature, on the environment, how they and capitalist industrialization caused climate change. Today, the design of residential homes now mimics the look of those factories that continue to destroy the planet. We'll find out what architecture looks like in a world plagued by climate change when we have the return of architecture and cultural critic Kate Wagner, who wrote the Baffler article, Staring at Hell, the Aesthetics of Architecture in a Ruined World. Kate is the creator of the blog McMansion Hell, which thoroughly examines the phenomenon that is the McMansion and uses it as a tool for architectural education and humorous cultural remarks. Marks. Follow Kate on Twitter at McMansionHell. Support Kate at ko-fi.com slash McMansionHell. Kate was on our show to talk McMansions back in June 2017. You can find that very entertaining interview in our archives at thisishell.com. Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash that check. What nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash that check? About Bloomberg after you... I'm sorry, I can't write faster. After you cash that check. Thank you. <laughs> what 
good. What nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash that check? That's this week's question from hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. That makes this week's question from hell. What nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash that check? The person with the best answer to this week's question wins a book we are featuring on Thursday's show, Margaret Kimberly's Presidential, Black America and the Presidents. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, leave your answer to this week's question at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or email it to alex or I at chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com, or DM us your answer via Twitter at thisishellradio. This is not the media. This is hell. We got an email this week at chuckatthisishell.com from Michael who writes, Hi Chuck and Alex. Excellent show today. I'm a fan. The topic touched on several of the themes in a climate fiction series I'm writing, The Greeny McGeehee Stories. Now I'm not too sure which interview Michael is referring to from last week because he sent the email on Saturday when we play all four of the week's shows back to back at our site and on WNUR, Chicago Sound Experiment, that we stream live here at thisishell.com Monday through Thursday. We just replay all those shows in a row, and I think that's where Michael was listening. So Michael's either talking about our interview last week with Colin Kinnebra on the uh, Descent Magazine article, Can Extinction Rebellion Survive?, or our talk with uh, Bram Boucher and Robert Fletcher, who wrote The Conservation Revolution, Radical Ideas for Saving Nature Beyond the Anthropocene. Anyway, Michael continues, I'll get in touch later this spring when I've self-published a couple of books, but thanks again for the thoughtful and fun discussion. I'm a longtime former veteran journalist, a former Moscow colleague of Matt Taibbi, who you had on your show. You guys are so cool. Thanks again for keeping climate change in the public airways and for being fun to listen to. All my best, and I'm going to give his full name here, Michael Sean Comerford, author of soon-to-be-released Greeny McGeehee series. Well, thanks for the kind words, Michael. And if you could, please ask Matt Taibbi to return to our show. It's been 12 years since he's been on, and we'd love to have him back. I think we'd love to have him back, at least. Every time we have booked a guest because they are a big name and it never really works out, listeners send emails asking why we had Van Jones or Ralph Nader or back in the day, Dennis Kucinich. We always get grief. I think the only famous person who was ever on our show, outside of like Chomsky and Zinn, that... Uh, people actually enjoyed the conversations when were the conversations we had with Monty Python's Terry Jones. But I'm going to leave it up to you, folks. I'm not too sure if we should have Matt Tybee back on the show or not. Uh, email me at chuckatthisishell.com and tell me if we should or should not have Matt Tybee back on the show. Kim also emailed us a guest suggestion, as is her want. Kim writes, Dear Chuck, please interview the folks that made the documentary The Great Hack. It details Cambridge Analytica's manipulation of 2016 U.S. elections, not the Russians, a never-ending conspiracy theory, and details the many politics of countries around the world that were manipulated by Cambridge Analytica. Find out more at thegreathack.com. 
Thanks, Kim. Actually, the filmmakers of The Great Hack have been on our potential upcoming guest list since the movie came out on uh, Netflix, which I think was back in October. Uh, Brian Muir, our correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brazil, who works over at Telesur English, Brazil Wire, he also strongly suggested The uh, Great Hack as a topic for an interview. He said the movie was really great. To be honest, I thought uh, the movie may no longer be pertinent, as we may have missed out on the timeliness of the story, but it doesn't sound like that's the case. So thanks, Kim. And we'll see if we can get the film's directors whose names I'm now going to butcher. Jahane Nujem and Kareem Amer on the show. Both have previously been nominated for the Academy Award for their documentaries, The Square, Control Room, and Startup.com. And come to think of it, I think we asked them to be on the show when Control Room was released. Hey, uh, both of them previously been emailed by me a couple months ago and never got back to Never me. got back to us? Yeah, I keep trying to. So, well, all right. We'll try, Kim. Uh, ben also wrote to us this week. Ben tells us, I noticed that I cannot search for any of your Noam Chomsky or Howard's interviews. I can understand if you want to make them available for your Patreon subscribers. Since they are quoted on your About page, you may want to have at least one of them available to any visitor. Thanks, Ben. Ben, we're currently looking for people to help us rebuild our archives so all 23 years can be available online. Putting all those interviews online is one of the many reasons we are raising money through Patreon at Patreon dot com slash this is hell so we can actually pay people to help us on our site and i think you are correct ben i believe we have shared most if not all of our over a half a dozen talks with gnome and around the same amount of conversations with uh, the late great howard zinn on patreon so if you want to hear those interviews or around 200 others we have shared with patreon subscribers exclusively on patreon if you want to hear those now and can't wait for us to put all of our on-air discussions online subscribe at patreon.com slash this is hell we also got a message from a listener via Facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell radio on the subversive ideology of the SpongeBob SquarePants universe. If we have time following our guest, I'll share that message with you. I'm pretty sure we'll have time, but I'm not too certain. Coming up, what does architecture look like and say about us in a world gone to ruin? Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is... What nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you, after you cash that check? What nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash that check? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets a book that we are going to be featuring on Thursday's show, which is Margaret Kimberly's Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents. Live from the nightmare of want, this is Hell, capitalist industrialization has devastated our environment, the factories that churned out the goods we enjoyed and the bad of climate change that we are definitely not enjoying stand empty, ruins of a time when they provided jobs and devastated the environment. So why do we look at those ruins with awe and what impact has that had on all architecture? Here to help us take a deeper look at architecture during late capitalism. Architecture and cultural critic Kate Wagner wrote the Baffler article, Staring at Hell, The Aesthetics of Architecture in a Ruined World. Welcome back to This is Hell, Kate. 
Thanks for having me. You can find Kate's writing at McMansionHell.com. She is the creator of the blog McMansion Hell, which thoroughly examines the phenomenon that is the McMansion and uses it as a tool for architectural education and humorous cultural remarks. Kate was on our show back in June of 2017, and you can find that interview where we discuss McMansions at ThisIsHell.com. Kate, I first have to tell you that immediately following our last interview nearly three years ago, my girlfriend and I got so excited about our conversation, and after checking out your site, went directly to a Chicago neighborhood that is filled with McMansions, this neighborhood on the far northwest side called uh, Sauganash, and we could not stop laughing at the homes. The, the numerous peaks, the many different uh, roof lines, the constantly mismatching window styles and sizes, the huge vaulted entryway. It was just so hilarious. And the thing that made me laugh the most, and you mentioned this during our interview, how often in McMansions, they'll take out the front lawn, put in pavers, and then they'll take their really nice cars and they'll park them out on their front pavers so everybody can see them. Like, it's a freaking car commercial. But during that conversation, <laughs> at one point, I said that people who own McMansions suck. And maybe that was a bit too judgmental. Is it fair to judge a person by the home they choose? Because I got a lot of emails from people saying that it was really mean of me to say that people who live in McMansions suck. I mean, I think it's situational. I think that um, essentially, like, the people who buy those houses, like, back in the day, they would have hired an architect and that's kind of like not as feasible now. And so people get what they think they're going to get. They think it's a nice house. They think it's a good investment. Uh, and so like, of course that's like a personal thing. And so it's one of those, those things that's, uh, I'd say it's a gray area. So if they're voting for Bloomberg, then you can absolutely make fun of them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. If they have a McMansion with a Bloomberg sign out on their pavers, then we can make fun of them. Yeah. Shortly. Oh, yeah. So shortly after we were, you were on our show in 2017, Zillow uh, went after you for using pictures from their website to analyze and critique McMansions uh, at your website. Yet those pictures did not belong to Zillow, and you can find the same ones at several different real estate websites. Eventually, Zillow backs down. Why did they back down? And in your opinion, what's your best guess as to why they went after you in the first place? Because it just didn't make any probably, sense to me. They probably just thought it was an easy target, like blogger, young, has no money. Some guys like first day is like a legal intern. And uh, they probably stepped down because the uh, EFF got involved. And you don't want to mess with the EFF. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Did uh, the whole incident cause you any grief? And if so, were you were you compensated in any way for the discomfort you felt by being the target of a huge corporation? No, but it uh, did make a lot of people, a lot more people know who I was and was great for my career, actually. So <laughs> it all worked out in the end. Oh, so all I have to do now, that's that should be my new business model. I should be sued by Zillow. Yeah. I like that idea. The, the Streisand the effect. <laughs> you write, when I was an 11-year-old child struggling with nascent mental illness, I received some perhaps ill-considered advice from one of my, one of many therapists. Knowledge is power. The idea was that by learning more about the things I feared, I would become less scared about them. In some ways, this worked, researching the murder rate of our small town and the statistics of prepubescent heart attacks quelled some of my more under, ungrounded fears. This prescription for knowledge, however, was 
contraindicated by an existing condition of mine, morbid fascination. It, uh, contra, contraindication is a, a drug, a procedure, surgery that should not be used because it may be harmful to the person who needs that drug, procedure, or surgery. How has your morbid fascination been harmful when it comes to your understanding of architecture? Well, I think it's mostly like it's I don't even think it has to do with architecture so much as it does. Like I spent like when I was writing this article, I spent uh, probably like four months like reading about every super fun site in the United States. And so I became pretty overwhelmed with all of the horrible things we've done to the world. Uh, became very sad. Um, <laughs> and so I think that that's uh, it's like the same thing. It's like you stay up late at night reading Wikipedia articles on like poisonous spiders. Like, man, I wouldn't want to run into a, a poisonous spider or like even worse climate change. Uh, you lose sleep pretty quickly. It's like, uh, all the things that are terrible and uh, wrong in the world are unfortunately quite fascinating. And so I drawn to that, like a moth to a flame, uh, in a way. This kind of came up in our conversation yesterday when we were talking with uh, scholar Mikkel Krauss-Franzen about his book, Going Nowhere Slow, The Aesthetics and Politics of Depression. He writes about the hypothesis of depressive realism, which states that depressed persons are not depressed because they have a distorted or delusional view of reality, but because they have a more accurate perception of reality than people who are not depressed. On the one hand, it's imperative to avoid the patholog uh, pathologization of depression found in diagnostic manuals and biomedical psychiatry. On the other, it is essential to sidestep the kind of romanticizing that is inherent to the idea of depressive realism. While Michael voices concern for the romanticization of the depressed artist and depressive realism becoming a way to brand or marketing strategy for you, does a more accurate understanding of architecture and understanding you may have due to your morbid fascination with McMansions or Superfund sites, does it lead to depressive realism? That is the depression you get when you better understand a subject? I already have depression, so uh, I'm already depressed. Um, in some ways, I think that um, it's always tempting to romanticize any kind of sort of aesthetic thing. Uh, I don't know about McMansions, but like, for example, I mean, the old factory is like a great example of an architectural phenomenon that is super romanticized. I mean, there's all these like coffee table books of ruined porn of old factories and people waxing poetic about their good jobs with good health care. And it's like, uh, on the one hand, you know, there is something to the pre neoliberal pre, um, post-industrial society where most of America was involved in manufacturing. It was just a different way of life. But on the other hand, these things, uh, these processes were extremely destructive to like the health of workers and to the environment and almost all industrial sites, once they are, you know, deindustrialized, have long lasting problems. And a lot of them do become in fact, like super fun sites. Uh, some of them, like, especially like 19th century buildings, like they get, they're considered, lovely enough to uh, retrofit into um, into luxury apartments or into hotels or into university buildings or into like an REI, you know. And so it's a lot of that history, uh, that sort of brutal labor history is, is erased in a way. Um, it's sort of whitewashed. 
You write that the power plant, mine, or refinery invokes strong feelings of awe and fear. And then there are some, such as the Superfund site, remediated or not, whose park-like appearance and sinister ambience remains aesthetically elusive. We also recently spoke with a sociologist, Martin Arboleda, about his book, uh, Planetary Mine, Territories of Extraction Under Late Capitalism. He wants us to view mm. the end of uh, the end outcome of mining, the final product created as as part of that mine, wherever that mine is, as being one and the same as the trucks, the trains, and the ships with increasing automation, uh, distributing fossil fuels with major advancements made in logistics this century. Martin believes the compartmentalizing of these things, instead of looking them at as a whole in climate change is a mistake. When we look at power plants, mines, or refineries, and the view invokes strong feelings of awe and fear, are we being confronted with our own role in global warming? How much is that fear we feel from industrial ruins driven by our fear of the future, our fear of the past, our fear of climate change? I mean, I definitely think that when you drive by a refinery, there's a certain kind of fear of unknowing exactly what happens in such a sort of technologically advanced facility. But also they're actually just like quite terrifying looking. I mean, it's like spewing fire and steam and it's this interconnected maze of all of these different processes and uh i think there we are confronted with a feeling that like we don't exactly know how the things that power our world or how the things that uh, make up our everyday life work and how sort of like what their consequences are beyond sort of an abstracted uh idea of like a climate change that is here but like we still think it's farther away uh, and I think we are confronted with the our reality is like quite ugly like our world we've done horrible things to the world and I think that like seeing that uh, seeing that is uh, just yet another one of those um, those feelings if that makes sense you write that humans, in other words, are enamored with ruin porn. Why the term, uh, why the word porn? Why in ruin porn? How is it pornographic or have any traits of pornography? Well, I think it's that it's like this super aestheticized uh, picture of ruin as like super glossy coffee table books that present it as like this inherently sort of emotionalized and poetic thing. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not the term that I came up with. Uh, it's a term that people use to describe uh, those sort of aestheticized projects that erase the um, the sort of hardship and the blight uh, and the ruined lives that comes with decay uh, in favor of just like a poetic image. It's like it's uh, remove uh, actual lived experience of decay from. Uh, and just pre presents a, an anesthetized image uh, that looks good in a book. Uh, you, oh, that's so sad. Or like, oh, that theater was so beautiful, and now it's tragically beautiful because it's a ruin. Do we see beauty in ruin porn because we either see nostalgia for the past or, or we feel a fictional nostalgia for a past that never existed? Is ruin porn a kind of celebration of our culture no matter how ugly that past may have been? I think it's definitely fueled by nostalgia, um, but it's like a kind of like self-consuming nostalgia. Uh, it's not like the sort of like 50s diner kind of nostalgia. It's like, it's like nostalgia more sort of in the French sense of that it's like kind of painful and bittersweet. Um, 
it makes us sort of feel lost. We look at art to feel things most of the time. Um, and so I think that this is definitely a part of that. Um, and I would say that um, with sort of the ruin, the ruin porn, I think it's like part of it is that we feel satisfaction from ruins because we are survivors and we survived that which is now ruined. And so we can look back with like a sort of smugness towards it. It's like, oh, that's so tragic, but it's not my problem. Or it's like, I, you know, must have been totally great when it was a thing, but now it's not a thing. And so I'm disconnected from it and only see this aestheticized. You write how Edmund Burke in 1756 described his as new emotion by way of several categories, the most important being... The 19th century. Yes, uh, of d- dimension scale, uh, infinity, seemingly end- endlessness, magnificence, a great profusion of things which are splendid or uh, valuable in themselves as magnificent, difficulty, light and darkness, uh, transition between them and the extremes of both. In Burke's time, many of these qualities could only be ascertained in the natural world, the scale of the Alps, the infinite expanse of the ocean, the magnificence of the stars in the night sky, the difficulty of climbing mountains and excavating quarries, the blinding brilliance of the sun on snow, and the pitch darkness of a lampless night. So how did these feelings go from being emotions caused by nature to feelings caused by human-made buildings that have fallen into disrepair? How do we transition those emotions over from nature to buildings? I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with, with scale and uh, especially, I mean, one of the first uh, types of buildings that was considered sublime was like the Gothic Cathedral, which was a building that was built at a scale that was sort of unimaginable uh, prior to that point in architecture. And they took centuries to build, so that was definitely part of it. But the sheer amount of labor involved was something that was really um, the, the sort of might of human toil, if you will, has always been sort of a thing about architecture that has been given sort of as, uh, aspects of the sublime. Uh, and as far as the, like the factories and the, um, and as far as the, the old, um, sorry, I'm on the train. <laughs> uh, as far okay. as the factories, yeah. As far as the factories and the, um, and like the refineries and these uh, uh, industrial landscapes, I think that, Part of the reason why they invoke such feelings of awe and because they are sort of inherently dangerous places, uh, there are there's the sites of, again, human toil and accidents. And the scale, of course, is like, I mean, a refinery is a huge, sprawling project. Uh, it it's happens on a scale much larger than uh, pretty much most other buildings. Uh, and so that kind of infrastructural pageant, if you will, is something that I think holds power for a lot of people. Uh, it's this feeling of being confronted with the kind of dark and disgusting realities of modern life that we like to kind of pretend don't exist. You write of particular interest is the fascination with ruins by landscape designers and aristocrats in the late 18th century and early 19th century, inspired by the Grand Tour, a cultural pilgrimage to Greece, Rome, and other ancient sites taken by well-to-do 
chaps in the 17th through 19th centuries and the widely published descriptions of the ruins of Greece and Rome, wealthy landowners across Europe paid architects and landscapers to build fake ruins on their estates. Paul Cooper, Cooper writing The Atlantic, described the process as a delusion of grandeur. To what extent is ruin porn a delusion of our society's grandeur right now as it exists in its state taken over by nature today? I definitely think that uh, there is a kind of romanticization of the sort of manufacturing past, uh, and it, it we want to sort of sort of forget that the we like to think that all of the toils that go into making the things that we use every day happens elsewhere, and we're reminded of the fact that that was a part of American daily life when we see these buildings uh, and when we see um, them overtaken by uh, nature. It's like wow. It's kind of like one of those we live in a society moments. Uh, <laughs> I think that it's um, something that holds a lot of power uh, to see things that we associate with sort of technological modernity recaptured by nature and by the land. Uh, it's like we were once a great democratic society. You know, we had the New Deal and all this other stuff. And it's like those monuments from that era are now covered in vines, much in the way that the, uh, you know, Greek and Roman temples were covered. Uh, they were sort of weathered down to near um, sort of archaeological artifacts. So it's, it's one of those things where it's like we are witnessing sort of the decay of mid-century life and uh, the manufacturing society. It, to it confirms the fact that we totally live in the post-industrial world. And uh, those toils that, that these places were the sites of happen elsewhere. We can sort of just push them out of our consciousness. But these buildings still remind us that those toils and those struggles still exist. You also mentioned uh, in 1721, the Derby Silk Mill, the first textile factory appeared in England, immediately recognizable as a factory. It stood five stories tall. Uh, and you talk about how it was beautiful. People thought the building was beautiful. Uh, the quaint water wheels of the early mills were replaced by coal-powered steam, and the skies became infamously blackened eventually. Despite these revolutionary changes in labor relations and the resulting environmental damage, several factories at the time of their operation were, in fact, considered beautiful. How could something be seen as beautiful that was so destructive? Because I'm reminded of the masthead on the early to mid-19th century McCormick Harvesting Machine Company's stationery, as well as postcards from the time, which featured drawings of the reaping machine factory, complete with smokestacks, belching huge plumes of black smoke. What does it say to you about a generation, if not more, who believe that polluting was a sign of progress, of grandeur? I mean, we definitely, that was a huge um, part of sort of modern consciousness, especially, I mean, that was modernity. Uh, that was progress. Like we had cheaper goods and we had uh, sort of like a higher quality of life with industrialization, which itself was a brutal process in which lots of people toiled and struggled and suffocated from smog. But at the same time, um, we definitely this view that the earth was sort of ours for the taking. And it wasn't until the uh, modern environmental movement in at mid-century, uh, you know, Silent Spring and whatnot, that people started to realize that this was unacceptable and that, like, we were destroying the world. We were 
uh, making things, places uninhabitable. I think when like the Cuyahoga River caught on fire, I think that was a big moment in a lot of people's consciousness for that, like actually this way of life can't continue. Um, But for a lot of time, it was just written off as like a byproduct of a better world. Um, it, it says a lot, uh, and I think that that attitude is still relatively prevalent, especially amongst like people who are politically conservative, that these things are just the price to pay for, uh, living in a world uh, with trains, planes, and automobiles, you know? And so I think that like, it's still something that we need to confront and it's still something that we need to actively fight against because it's a very powerful interest. It's a very powerful perspective. It is the de facto perspective of American capitalism, um, You write that the textile mills of Lowell, Massachusetts, built in stages in the 1810s, were a landmark of industrial development. And you add that it is perhaps because of this unusually positive reputation, the quaintness of its New England setting, that in the 1960s, a time when the environmental ills of the factory were more pronounced than ever, Lowell was chosen to become a historic cultural park preserved in perpetuity as a museum. How much do museums like Lowell's disseminate a good feeling towards capitalism as being unobtrusive and not damaging to the environment at all? Because when I was a kid, I went to this uh, logging museum and I always enjoyed it. This year, they're actually reopening their WPA era built museum for the first time in decades. And I want to go see it, but it's a museum praising the destruction of Michigan virgin pine forests. And because of the stuff we talk about on our show, I'm thinking it's going to be very, very depressing. Do industrial and resource extraction museums deny the negative impact of capitalism on climate change? Are they, in fact, propaganda? I think it depends on who's running the museum, frankly. I think with um, I think with a lot of museums, uh, especially like museums of industry, I think they're pretty balanced in terms of what they um, – say about like the environment versus um, I think people go to museums of industry because they want to know how things work. Um, And I think that these places definitely offer that knowledge. I mean, and I think it's important knowledge. I think it's important to know uh, how these technologies worked or how they have worked in the past. And industrial history is still history and still deserves to be shared with the public, like all history, uh, even though, you know, maybe like the environmental aspect of it is wrong. But I think a lot of these places do balance that um, at least like they, or they acknowledge it, but you have to understand like the sort of historical context that at the time these things weren't considered as much of an issue. Um, And so like we, by perhaps like going back and saying like, actually all this was wrong. We are uh, historicizing. uh, We are offering a contemporary perspective on uh, an issue that was treated completely differently during its day. And so there are some historians that take a problem with that. And it's only because climate change is such a sort of uh, totalizing phenomenon that I think that uh, there is more of a push towards having that kind of like revisionism in industrial history. But I mean, I've read a lot of books on industrial history, especially for writing this article. And uh, most of them are pretty frank about the kind of like crimes against nature that were committed by uh, industrial companies. You'd write about the work of artists who moved into empty uh 
factories in New York and turned those places into Soho lofts in the 1960s and 1970s, established both a well-worn pattern of gentrification as well as the still popular loft aesthetic defined by minimalistic, white-painted, expansive spaces. And you also write about how uh, when you talk about uh, Corbusier and Gropius and this idea of homes being a machine for living in, what happens when our homes become machines for living in and our homes are actually built in old factories? What happens to the way that we understand life and architecture and relate with architecture when we're not living in a home to live in, we're living in a machine to live in? Well, I think it's interesting with the artists and the lost because for them it was liberatory because they could like kind of do huge, huge paintings, like huge... Uh, sculptural works, like, I mean, they had space to live and work, and that was affordable, and you couldn't, unless you lived, like, way out in the boonies, like, there was no way you could even get something like that. And so, it was, uh, it was one of those things where, um, sort of a, a necessity, a necessary evil. The gentrification bit sort of came after uh, when people decided that that way of living was, you know, aesthetically preferable uh, because of the tall ceilings and, like, the, the rooms filled with light. But for the people who first moved there, that first generation, like, they didn't have heat. Like, they basically, like, were living illegally. Like, a lot of them got evicted. It was, like, not exactly, like, a glamorous life. I, myself, lived in a, uh, like, a uh, old uh, cork bottle factory in uh, uh, Baltimore, which is an infamous, uh, I guess, famous and infamous building called the copycat building. I lived there when I first came to Baltimore. I lived that warehouse life with like five other people. And uh, it was, it was definitely cool. Like you felt cool. You could kind of do everything. It was, you could paint the walls. It was fun, but it was also like kind of unsustainable and the heat didn't work. And eventually I just wanted to live in a place that had functioning heat. And so that became kind of like the impetus for giving up that bohemian lifestyle. Um, but I think that as far as the machine for living in, I think that's more of a metaphor is that like a house should be as efficient as possible. It's kind of like an architectural tailorism, if you will. Uh, and I think to some extent, like we still believe that we still see like efficiency as something that's important, especially like in multifamily home construction. And I don't even necessarily think it's a bad thing. Like we want things to be efficient. We want things especially to be energy efficient. And so I, I think that, like, you know, it's it's not like sort of dehumanizing the house to make it efficient. I think that it's only misunderstood as being cold, but it's it's really kind of a multifaceted and nuanced idea that gets boiled down to something that's not. You write that in Baltimore, a post-industrial city by any definition, this uh, the Daylight Factory imitation began with the development of the first city arts building in 2008 and 2010. City Arts, an affordable housing project specifically for artists, borrowed its aesthetics from the nearby industrial buildings, including the Daylight Factory known as the Annex, which is now itself inhabited by artists, but was once auxiliary, auxiliary space for the Crown Cork and Seal Company. To you, is that good enough reason to put people in residences that that look like, that uh, feel like, and that maybe were factories. That is, to fit in to whatever architectural landscape already exists. Should people in certain neighborhoods live in factories because those neighborhoods had factories? I think it's mostly that, that the buildings are, those 19th century factories are ripe for uh, adaptive reuse. 
Uh, I mean, for example, like they are relatively structurally sound. They have tall ceilings. They have large windows full of natural light. Uh, and those things are all very attractive in living spaces. Um, new buildings are often constructed to look that way. And so it's something that like the buildings are uh, definitely seen as assets and rather than tearing them down, they're reused. And I think that that's a good thing. I think it's good to reuse buildings that are reusable. Uh, it's much better than tearing them down. Uh, as far as, and I think that the, the sort of loft, the artist loft works well for artists. It, they can paint, they can dance, they can do sculpture. I mean, I think for artists specifically, that way of living makes a lot of sense. And uh, I was with, I mean, people installed galleries in like the lofts in the Crown Cork and Steel building, which is now the copycat building. I mean, it was like they had galleries, they used to have gallery walks and all kinds of stuff. It was like definitely a cohesive, like livable environment that you wouldn't be able to get otherwise. And so I think that it's like a double-edged sword for the artists because they they clean up these buildings, they live there like for cheap and they're kind of like a vulnerable population. Cause like nobody makes any money being an artist. And so when like developers come in and decide like, we're going to condo all of this stuff, like they are the first ones to get kicked out. Like they were the ones who fix up the buildings and the things they get is basically getting priced out. I mean, it's, it's a double, it's like a double edged sword. Basically like capital uses artists as a means to an end to make more money. Uh, and it's just kind of depressing, but I think like, as far as living in factories go, like the 19th century factories are great buildings for living in. Um, and the reason why they had, they needed those huge windows for ventilation. They needed the tall ceilings also for ventilation and for, um, because industrial equipment was big. And so it was just a sort of necessary fact of building for them. And you mentioned the process of gentrification that also happens with community organizations in uh, under in, in problematic neighborhoods where people work together to fight against crime, to make the neighborhood look nicer, do better landscaping in the area, fix up their homes. And when they're all renters, then their prices go up and they're forced out of the neighborhood. So often you see that happening in uh, areas of high rental percent, high rental rates here in Chicago and other big cities where community organizations fight to make their neighborhood better and then they're forced out by the developers in the area. So uh, you were uh, you write that um, what separates the fetishization of industrial ruin from efforts like the preservation of the Lowell Museum is that the latter's restoration was a celebration of the history of science and its culture, its contri contributions to society, rather than a masochistic joy in the mill's failure. Are former factories then sites of celebrating the collapse of uh, capitalism or of the greatness of the market? I think it's a. Uh, I think it's. I think it's like definitely a combination of both. Um, I think that it's, uh, we feel joy at like that, that we once had like great industry and that's really cool. Right. Uh, we once were sort of triumphed over nature, but now like we've moved on, we are a technological society and our money is made in Bitcoin and Facebook. Like we don't need these old like husks of, of, uh, the past anymore. And so there is a kind of smugness to it. There is a kind of, fetishization of the sort of empty, empty uh, industrial building, if that makes sense. 
You also, uh, you quote an English professor, John Patrick Leary at Detroit's Wayne State University, writing in Guernica in 2011, ruined porn aestheticizes poverty without inquiring of its origins, dramatizes spaces, but never seeks out the people that inhabit and transform them, and romanticizes isolated acts of resistance without acknowledging the massive political and social forces aligned against the real transformation and not just stubborn, stubborn survival of the city. Does ruin porn then erase political agency from the people of Detroit? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's definitely like one of those things where it's like, oh, this is just so sad. Like everyone's poor and these buildings are run down and that's just so sad. You know, it's like doesn't they totally doesn't acknowledge the people who work to make these places better and who have resisted against the, the decay and blight of their cities like no one wants their city to decay no nobody wants disinvestment nobody wants blight uh except for these room porn people who think it's like beautiful and tragic and worth putting in coffee table books so it's definitely one of those things that uh where again like labor is erased whether the labor of the people who toiled in factories or the labor of the people who have resisted the decay of their cities it's definitely uh, just a really aestheticized and anesthetized way of looking at buildings you write that visitors to Chernobyl, a huge site of ruined porn, uh, transform themselves from tourists into brave survivors at the end of times, marveling at the growing irradiated grass. Does ruined porn then, you touch on this at the beginning, but does it, how does it engender a sense of heroic accomplishment? Are we the heroes because we visited that place and survived? Is that how it makes us feel like heroes? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like a post-apocalyptic, like, role-playing fantasy where you go to Chernobyl and you put on, like, your uh, bunny suit and you take Instagram photos and then you leave. Totally doesn't, again, like, it's weird that people go to Chernobyl. It's, like, weird that we fetishize, like, what was, like, really, like, a horrible disaster in such a way that it, like, becomes a site for, like, Instaporn like ridiculous but at the same time like we like to like role play like we are the hero of our own movies that's a very human thing to do you talk about people for their wedding pictures going to sites of oh, yeah. porn going to chernobyl and having their wedding pictures taken there i think you recently got married why didn't you have your pictures taken at chernobyl uh couldn't <laughs> afford the airfare obviously <laughs> All right. How about uh, Love Canal? Why not get why? Why do you think people have their wedding picture taken in front of ruin porn? Ah, I think it's because it's again like it's edgy. I don't know. People like to be edgy. Actually, I don't have an answer for this one. I have no idea why anyone would want to do that besides to be like edgy on Instagram. Uh, I find it actually like quite beguiling. <laughs> You write, humans have always stared into hell, and before our sheer domination of nature through technology, nature itself offered such perils. One has always been tempted when faced with a large mountain or cliff to imagine the horrific outcome of falling from it. Meanwhile, the danger of industry, from coal-choked 19th century skies to cancer clusters, awes humans who both benefit and are waylaid by its taming. Is the problem that we are awed by industry? Can we in some way no longer have that feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear or wonder toward industry is the problem that we are awed by it. Uh, I think the problem is that like we as individuals don't have enough power to change the way things are. 
that takes political power. That takes organizing. Uh, aesthetics are one thing, but they're not they're not the solution. And most of the time, I'd say that like they're it would give them too much power to say that they are the problem. The problem here is that like I mean, the fossil fuel companies basically run everything, uh, and uh, we you know recycle and we like feel bad about Love Canal, but like what can we do? And in fact, Love Canal offers a great example of like the EPA didn't want to do anything about Love Canal until all the people who lived there created a ruckus and made it politically impossible for them to ignore the problem. And so I think that like that, again, the environmental movement offers a great portrait of the kind of political power that's necessary for change. And uh, towards the end of your article, you mentioned environmental grief. How do you define environmental grief? I mean, every time I read the news, I have environmental grief. Uh, we, I mean, we, I think all of us, uh, even like the most uh, embedded city dweller feels just really awful about the things that we've done to the world. Um, the feelings of loss of nature, the feelings of fear for the future. I think all of those things are absolutely human to feel. And I think that it's how we process that varies from person to person, but I think it's a universal thing. You write this environmental grief is nowhere near as powerful as the indescribable bereavement that grips the communities, often poor and non-white, who grapple with the fallout of capitalism's wasteland every single day. Maybe it's only in the grief that we reckon honestly with what we have done to the world. There is no future without beauty, no present without a past, and no progress without confrontation. But without these, there is hell on earth. Does our architecture today represent any kind of attempt at climate change denialism, at capitalist destruction denialism, at our own complicity in both? Oh, yeah. Uh, Architecture most of the time cares only about its own image and how good it looks. And uh, though there are movements uh, such as, like, I think, you know, technically not architecture, but, like, the Green New Deal is, like, the greatest promise we've had for really substantial change in as long as I've been an environmental activist. I would say that... uh, um, like things like uh, net zero architecture, passive architecture, passive house standards, all of these things are, uh, they've been around for a long time. Like we figured out how to make like carbon neutral building where they're self-sustaining and self-powering like in the 1990s. It, the problem is, is that the political will and the, and the financial capital is not there to universalize that. And so like, it's, it's really, again, it's a political problem because I mean, architecture is kind of inherently narcissistic. Like it always thinks that it has the answer to all of our problems, but it doesn't. It doesn't have the answer of how we implement real change in the built environment. Uh, and most of like the big architects on this earth are like too busy, like building like yachts for Saudi oligarchs and stuff. I mean, like there's like a real like ethical lapse in a lot of the major firms in architecture. Like Bjarke Engels just got caught palling around with Bolsonaro. I mean, it's like <laughs> not not a great look. And so I think like uh, the field is, needs to be a lot more serious about climate change and not just like how to aestheticize the future, but how to actually like make change happen as a political reality. 
We have been speaking with architecture and cultural critic Kate Wagner, who wrote the Baffler article, Staring at Hell. You can find all of her writing at McMansionHell.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at McMansionHell. But go support Kate at ko-fi.com slash McMansionHell so she can continue with McMansionHell. This is Kate's second appearance on our show. She was on back in 2017, and you can hear that interview at thisishell.com. One last question for you, Kate, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. Was I wrong, Kate, to like Tyree Guyton's Ruin Porn, the Heidelberg Project in Detroit? Was I wrong way back in, like, 1998 to talk to Lowell Boileau about his photography website, The Fabulous Ruins of Detroit? Could that kind of fascination with ruins lead to an anesthetizing of capitalism's impact on climate change and the destructive power of poverty and urban abandonment? Was I complicit in that kind of abandonment by liking Heidelberg Project and talking to Lowell Ballow? I mean, I think that, like, in, I think we have a totally different perspective on the whole thing now. Uh, I mean, hindsight is always twenty twenty. you know. Uh, I think that that's really the case. I mean, I definitely have, like, believed stupid things and done stupid things in my life as an environmental act- activist. But also, like, you know, the, it's, you know, if you want to speak objectively from, like, the technical point of art, like, the photographs are good. Like, they're lovely photographs. I mean, I one of my favorite books is uh, David T. Hansen's Wasteland, which is aerial photographs from the 80s of Superfund sites. I mean, terrifying stuff, like, really horrible. But, I mean, the photos are gorgeous. The subject matter is terrible. The photos are gorgeous. I think we're inherently attracted to good photography. I guess that's my answer. I guess it's not exactly a satisfying answer, but, I mean, I think it's a realistic one. Kate, thank you so much for being back on our show. I really appreciate it. I'm going to keep reading your work at McMansion Hell and expect us to be bugging you in the future to have you back on. Awesome. Thank you. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so... You do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell for you, our listening audience, is what nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash that check? What nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash that check? We'll give you a couple more of uh, or Alex. I'll have some of your responses in just a moment. Or what should I do, Alex? Question from hell responses or finish up the SpongeBob thing? Uh, either way, I'm fine. Yeah, you want to finish a SpongeBob thing or you want to... Let's do the, uh, some answers to the question from hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. At This Is Hell Radio on Twitter. Email it to chuck at thisishell.com. The person who wins will get the book that we are featuring on Thursday's show, Margaret Kimberly's Prejudential, Black America and the President's. Alex, give us, some more, give us some of this week's answers to the question from hell. This week's question from hell is, what nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg? After you cash that check. Uh, Jack W. says, this guy sure knows how to buy my silence. Uh, John T. says, Bloomberg, unlike Soros, his checks exist. Dan K. says, that's funny. He doesn't look Jewish. Kevin W. says, they're not wrinkles. They're laugh lines. What nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg? After you cash that check, Andrew P. says, hope you like the guillotine I'm about to buy. Scott W. says, he dresses nice. Jeremy T. says, tune into MSNBC to find out. <laughs> Garrett S. Oh, boy. Uh, Garrett S. Centrally moans, I'd let Bloomberg stop and, stop and frisk me. <sighs> Scott S. says, he never skimped on office security. The searches were thorough, illegal, and slammed against the wall in the most loving way. Wow. Shane M. says, nobody, even in the rain, has such small hands. Well, nobody except Trump. Have you seen that guy? Jeez. <laughs> 
What nice thing are you saying about Bloomberg after you cash that check? Jesse W says he can frisk me anytime. Hashtag daddy. Oh, God. Let be the la- let that be the last time I say hashtag daddy on the show. Uh. A couple more responses. Uh, Wally R says I won't be able to say anything. I'll just close my eyes and be grateful if he doesn't pull my ears too hard. Oof. Jeez. Olaus says that he's not a Democrat. Mitchell C says you can't spell electable without Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> uh, Ronaldo M says wow he sure has a lot of money. Fabio L says, eat the rich. This one tastes like bacon. A couple more via email. <laughs> Jesus, Fabio. Uh, via email. Uh, Calvin G says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. <laughs> Adam K says, Mayor Mike cares about the future of his country, especially its children, and that's why he was proud to support the little St. James mentoring program. And finally, Warren L, please, sir, may I have another? Again, leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. And the winner this week will get the book that we are featuring on Thursday, Margaret Kimberly's Prejudential. So we got this email this week. Eric sent us a message about SpongeBob. Keep in mind, I've never watched SpongeBob for more than the time it takes to switch channels. But I still found this fascinating. Eric writes, have you ever discussed the subversive ideology of the SpongeBob universe? Eric, no, I have not. You may find that surprising, and it never has come up at This Is Hell office hours on Fridays. Eric continues, there is an essay somewhere on the topic which has been mulling around in my head for years, but I just wrote this summary for myself. So here is Eric summarizing the subversive ideology of SpongeBob SquarePants. He says, SpongeBob is sold to us as the light-hearted, well-intentioned participant. They never take life too seriously, and yet they embrace their role in capitalist society with exceptional fervor and dedication. Squidward is, another one of the characters, is sold as a negative Nancy. Frequently uh, over-serious, they recognize the indifference with which the establishment treats them, and they refuse to be irreciprocally eager while they perform the duties which fulfill their socioeconomic ranks. These roles are sold uh, sold so as to suggest both diametric opposition and to forcibly align us with the obviously preferred protagonist and to align us against the protagonist's role with Squidward, which Squidward frequents. Whether the writers intend this sale or it is a consequence of their unobserved indoctrinated position within the capitalist system, the repetitive posturing of our hero SpongeBob against the supporting character Squidward helps to reinforce various liberal dogmas, particularly those dogmas regarding the impropriety of tone, speech, and behavior in general. The third character in SpongeBob SquarePants, Patrick, occupies a clear morally distinct position, which is sold through its alignment to SpongeBob and Squidward. Patrick is a classically moronic and oblivious oaf, but through their relational alignment to SpongeBob as a dedicated friend and ally, Patrick's thesis is ultimately, if not immediately, validated by default. Altogether, the posturing of these three characters gives license to those eager participants, SpongeBob's, and to those ignorant fools. Patrick's, who performs similar roles in real life and vilifies the position and behavior of anyone who readily accepts higher truths, Squidward's. And just like that, Eric has me interested in watching SpongeBob SquarePants. Way to reproduce capitalism, Eric. 
Hey, Alex, who's on tomorrow's Wednesday's Live one-hour show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time, just like today's show. Uh, we're excited about this. John Bellamy Foster will be on to talk about his monthly review book, The Robbery of Nature. Tune in tomorrow's show, streaming live at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream to hear more of the answers to this week's question from hell and our interview tomorrow. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Alex for producing, Kate Wagner for appearing on this week's show. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>